I hope that's a challenge for you to consider what's going to drive you this Christmas. Is it the aspect of our culture? And we're not criticizing that, but, or is it Jesus Christ? What is front and center? And we're going to talk about worshiping fully this morning. I don't know what struck you in that. One of the things that struck me was $1 trillion spent. Um, We're going to talk about the priority of worship. You can turn to Psalm 95. It's a classic text on worship. I want to begin with a video, but I want to explain the video. Now, when you see this video, I realize it's like, remember the days when you were four years old and you had the Brussels sprouts and the asparagus on your plate and you wouldn't eat it? And your mom and dad said, there's starving kids around the world that would love to have that, so you're going to eat it. You know, did it work? No. And if you're like me, I'm thinking to myself, you know, why don't you send it over there then so they can have it, you know? So I'm going to show you a video. It's about Wayne Cadero talking about a meeting he had with churches in China. And I realize the video is somewhat like talking to a four-year-old. Not that you're four-year-olds, but you'll get what I mean. My goal's not guilt. That's not the goal of the video. I want you to consider two things as you watch this short clip. I want you to see the value they place on worship, the value and the importance of that. And number two, I want you to think of their context as well. Those two things, the importance and value of worship and their context. Let's look at the clip. Let me finish with this uh, story. Uh, we go to China from time to time, and, and uh, uh, we train leaders. And this time, we brought up 22 leaders from the Hunan province, and they rode 13 hours on a train to get to a hotel that they came up two by two in these elevators as, so as to not draw any attention. And then they got to a hotel room, a little apartment uh, room. It's only about 700 square feet in the little living room, no air conditioning, hardwood floor, 22 sat there. I came in, and when you teach in China, you start at 8 in the morning, and you don't get done till 5 at night. You teach the whole day. They were sitting there, all 22 of them, and I looked around and I said, now, if we get caught, what will happen to me? They said, oh, you'll get deported in 24 hours and we'll go to prison for three years. I said, you're kidding. How many of you have been in prison for your faith? Out of 22, 18 raised their hands. I thought, no way. I looked at him and I said, you you 22 people, how many people do you oversee? Because they were all of these small group leaders, underground church leaders in the Hunan province. I said, how many, if you counted up all the people under your jurisdiction, how many would it be? And they counted them up and they said, a little over 20 million. I said, what? See, we forget there's 1.3 billion people in China. This is crazy. Well, I had 15 Bibles, and I passed them out. Obviously, seven didn't get them. And I said, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read it. And just then, one lady handed hers to somebody next to her. And I thought, hmm, interesting. Well, we turned there anyway, and as we started reading it, I understood why she gave it away. She had memorized the whole thing. She just recited the whole chapter. When it was done, I went over to her at a break, and I said, you, you, you recited the whole chapter. She says, oh, yes, I've memorized many chapters. I said, where did you memorize many chapters? She said, in prison. <laughs> she said, you have much time in prison. <laughs> it's 
So I said, but don't they confiscate the Bible? And she said, yes. So people bring in scriptures written on pieces of paper and they bring it in. So I said, but then if they find that piece of paper on you, won't they confiscate that? She said, oh yes, that's why you memorize it as fast as you can. Because <laughs> even though they can take the paper away, they can't take what's hidden in your heart. Wow. Well, after three days, you fall in love with these people. And when it was done, I said, how can I pray for you? I'm going to go back to America. And you guys have been just so wonderful. How can I pray for you? They said, you know, Wayne, you guys can gather like this whenever you want to in America. We can't. Could you pray that one day we'll be just like you? And I looked at him and I said, I will not do that. Big, incredulous eyes looked at me and they said, well, why? <laughs> I said, because you guys rode a train for 13 hours to get here. In my country, if you've got to drive more than an hour, people don't come. You sat on a wooden floor for three days. In my country, if people have to sit more than 40 minutes, they leave. You sat not only here for three days on a hard wooden floor, but you did it without air conditioning. In my country, if it's not padded pews and air conditioning, people don't often come back. In my country, we have an average of two Bibles per family. We don't read any of them. You hardly have any Bibles, and you memorize them from pieces of paper. I will not pray that we become like, uh, you become like us, but I will pray that we become just like you. Let me finish with this uh, story. Uh, we go to China from time to time, and, and uh, it's looping. <laughs> I was going to say, I got to what, five o'clock? Uh, here's a question I get a lot, okay, as a pastor. People ask me all the time, how do we face troubles in life and live with peace, joy, and love? I read and hear stories like this. And what I discovered is that this inner strength that we seek, this peace in the midst of chaos, this joy when our emotions are all over the place, this love in the midst of evil, especially when it's done to us. What I discovered over the last 44 years is that the way through is what we call worship. And the older I get, the more sacred worship becomes. And the more sacred, the more necessary. And I think about in America, I'm contrasting with what I saw in the video, with all our toys and our stuff, and our lights and our fog machines. I think we've lost something. And what we've lost is the object of our worship. We make worship about us and not him. So let's turn to Psalm 95. I encourage you, there's some pews in the Bible. I'm going to go down through this. And I really want to look at three questions this morning. What is worship? Why should we worship? And how can we worship? Those three questions. What is worship? Why we should worship? And how can we worship? Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. 
Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the God, our maker. For he is our God, and we are his people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in Meribah, on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and Put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. This is God's word. First question What is worship? I ran across a definition by Dr. Tim Keller. Here's what he says. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that energizes and engages your whole being. Jesus tells a story about Matthew 13, about this pearl of great price. This merchant finds this pearl, sees its value, and literally sells everything in his possession, gets rid of Everything, all his retirement accounts, all his businesses, his home. He sells everything so he can buy that one pearl. And of course, the pearl represents who? Christ, the object of our worship, the value of Christ. It is far above anything that we could possess. Now in our text, the psalmist says that we have to worship with our minds, with our wills, and our emotions. I mean, just look down at some of, look at verse 1, verse 6, verse 8. Verse 1 about emotions. He says, sing, make a joyful noise. He says, shout. In verse 6, he talks about the will. He uses words like submission, come, bow down, kneel. They're all words of surrender. In verse 8, he says, hear, listen, do not harden. And what he's telling us is that worship in the context of all three is very important to understand if you want to navigate and change any life pattern. Now, contrast that with our culture. Our culture experience is king. What we worship is our emotions. Here's what I feel. Here's what it does for me. I mean, you know, this over here, this makes me feel good. Now, again, this isn't anything new. And early in my ministry, we used to have revival meetings. Anybody remember those? And early on, we used to have them for three weeks long in the spring and two weeks in the fall. And we would bring in an evangelist. And now I know when I look back at this from a sociological perspective, he was a motivational speaker is what he was. And it would go and people would have huge emotional experiences. There'd be tears, there'd be weeping, there'd be confession. And none of that is bad. But what I noticed after each revival meeting is nothing changed. Well, it did for like two weeks. But then they went right back to their old patterns until revival came again. And they did all the tears, the weeping, promises, confession, and nothing changed. They go up front for the same thing, year after year after year. In reality, they were stuck. 
And you know people like that, don't you? In fact, you know that inside yourself. That's what happens often. But worship properly engaged transforms us. And that moves us to the question of why. You know, worship is that act of ascribing ultimate value. And it has ultimate value. And it energizes and engages our whole being. And we have to ask, why do we worship? In verse 3 of 95, why does the psalmist engage their emotions, their minds, their will? You know the little word for? For what? For we have a great God and a great king who is above all gods. And, and later on it says, in his hands, the depths and the heights of the earth form dry land. In verse 7 again, for our God, our shepherd, we are his people. And see, what worship does, it sees all of life in the value of who God in Christ is. We assign him the highest value, and then through his eyes and through his heart, we evaluate everything in our lives, not the other way around. See, the why is about intimacy with God, and intimacy is about truth. I heard this illustration given one time. Talked about a woman who inherited a piece of jewelry and it was handed down from generation to generation and she kept it in a drawer and really didn't think about it till one day she was cleaning things out and saw this and thought, well, why don't I take it down to the jeweler, get it cleaned and get it appraised, see if it's worth anything. Doesn't mean much to me. So she handed her the jeweler and the jeweler looked at it and pulled out that little eye thingy and she noticed that he kept looking and looking and then he got agitated, started sweating a little bit. And he says, I'll be right back. And he went in the back and got a bigger eye thingy. And he started examining this piece very closely and started researching it. And what he discovered was it was a piece of jewelry from centuries ago. And it was worth more than this entire store. It was priceless. Here is this woman. She was living with something that was priceless and she was not living in accordance with what she possessed. When she found out it was priceless, her entire life was changed. So the question is, what do we view as priceless? See, worship is assigning ultimate value to God and aligning our lives in accordance with that value. And I've noticed at least in America, many people believe in God, but their lives are completely unaffected. God is often like a pick-me-up, a jolt of caffeine in the morning. But worship is seeing his worth and living his worth. And what we have to understand is this. God designed us for worship. He designed us that we will ascribe ultimate value to something. We are designed to worship. See, worship... The world's not divided by those who worship and those who don't. The world is divided by what or who we worship. That's why people say things like this. Well, you know, if, if I only had more, and you fill that blank in, whatever they consider value, they think if they had more, then their life would have that peace, joy, and whatever they think it'll give them. If I only had this job, they think somehow that promotion, that raise, that shift, will give them what they think it will give them, which it will not. If I only had this person in my life, then I'd be doing a lot better. 
See, often we ascribe value to some object or person. And when life falls apart and when it doesn't deliver, then we just start seeking other objects of worship. Another person and no amount of money and no job can fill that hole that's in your heart. Richard Foster wrote in the 80s and Keller wrote in the 90s a book that kind of parallels each other. They talk about three major idols that we bow down and worship as a culture. Their money, their sex, and their power. Now think about this. Think about what our world's obsessed with. I mean, today in America, we worship sexuality. It's all about the pronouns and the gender ideology. That is what defines people now. Think about power. I'm just going to use the world of politics. It's no longer about what's good for the people. It's about who is in control and who wins. Think about wealth. The amount of debt we create because we think we need more than we have is astronomical, both on a national level, it keeps going up, and on a personal level. I just read an article this past week that says credit card debt is starting to skyrocket because of inflation, and people want to keep spending at the current level prior to inflation. What we value becomes our obsession. And only worship of God brings clarity to life. Here's an old quote, Becky Pipper. Maybe some of you know who she is, but I love what she writes about this. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who lives for acceptance by other people is controlled by the people he or she seeks to please. But one thing is certain. We do not control ourselves. We don't like to hear that, do we? We are controlled by the Lord of our life. Now, I put the capital L there because I hope... You are controlled by the Lord Jesus, not the Lord small l something else. But worship will change your life. But the psalmist says, why we worship? Because in God you have it all. I mean, you have the Lord of creation. You have the good shepherd. You have the person who formed and made this world. You have it all. That's why Paul says, you can take everything I have, including my life, for me to live as Christ to die as gain. And all this stuff in our world is so chaotic. It doesn't cause us to lose hope, does it? And what the psalmist is telling us is that worship changes. It changes our heart desires. It changes where our mind goes. And it changes what our will does. So even in a place like China, you live the value of worship at the risk of prison and poverty. And if you don't think it's happening today... Uh, Joe Duke said that BCM, many of you are familiar with that mission organization, seven national missionaries went missing. They're probably in prison somewhere if they're still alive. Question then becomes, how can we worship well? There's three things in this text that the psalmist talks about. Here's the first. It's community. Now, did you notice, and it's so obvious that we miss it, Do you see the plural us? Right down through the whole text. He doesn't say me. He doesn't say I. He talks about us. Worship is done in community. Now, I know we have individual worship, but we must, according to the psalm here, we must engage in corporate worship. I know it goes against our consumeristic, individualistic, Western idea of spirituality. But scripture tells us 
We're made in his image. It tells us that we need community. Amen? I know people in DR understand that one. You don't overcome addiction alone. You do it through community. But the community is diverse. Paul says it this way. He's given an analogy of the church. He talks about a human body. And he says, everyone can't be an eye and everyone can't be an ear. We need all the parts to function as a whole. But we get so narrow and so legalistic in our definitions. When I first moved to Canada, I joined a place called Institute for Christian Studies and worked on a master's of worldview studies. And when I applied, I sat down with the person who intakes and says, well, we're not going to let you in this program. You got two strikes against you. I'm like, man, they don't even know me and they're already striking me out. So I said, okay, what's up? They said, well, first of all, you're an American. Here's what they said. Americans have a very narrow worldview of life. They think everyone is like them, and if they're not, they should be. I thought, ooh, ouch. That's, that's truer than I wanted to admit. Then they said, second, you're a pastor. I'm like, ooh. They said, pastor do not do well when exegeting culture. Now, they did let me in, and I did well. And uh, so I, I did kind of nullify both those. But think about this. What they were saying was this, that we need to be in community, but that community needs, by di- needs to be diverse. The first class I had, I had five different countries represented from around the world. And yes, Christians around the world think a little different than we do. And they worship a little different, but the center, the value is who? It's God. So we need community. Second, the psalmist says we need truth. The psalmist was submitting to the truth the prophet said about God. All those things about being great, about being creator, the shepherd. And all I want to say here is truth matters. People today want spirituality. People today want community. But here's what they say. I want to design my own God. And I want to design my own community. Of course, this violates true community and spirituality. And in this place, what happens is tribalism. We gather people who think like us, act like us, believe like us, and we shut everybody else that doesn't agree with us. And that's why there's so much violence, because when you study it from a sociological standpoint, tribalism increases violence, doesn't decrease it. Diverse community decreases violence. See, worship submits to a body of truth. And so often we avoid community. Why? <laughs> because we want to avoid truth. Because people that are our real friends will speak truth into our lives. The third is gospel Sabbath rest. Let me explain what I mean by this. You know, the end of the psalm is kind of a downer, isn't it? He says in verse 8, don't harden your heart. And he gives this history lesson. It's a short lesson of, you remember the desert? You didn't listen to me? You were on your way to the land of rest, the promised land of milk and honey, and you said no? Your stubbornness cost you? You were homeless? You wandered with no purpose for 40 years? And there you died. And that was your choice, not mine. Rest came to the second generation. And I use the term gospel rest because we've been studying about the gospel and not having another gospel out of Galatians. 
And we realize that the gospel is that we're accepted through Jesus Christ plus nothing. And the gospel rest is we rest from trying to earn our relationship with God. It's that simple. See, far too often we say things like this. If I live a good life, then God will bless me. And then we see our wealth as an affirmation that we are good people. And that's so wrong because I think about those Christians in China. They live good lives and they go to prison and even worse. You know, you have to understand that if it's a truth in Scripture and it's an absolute truth, you can apply it to any nation, any place, any time. And so often we twist it into our own American version. But if you don't understand gospel rest, then worship is just one more to do that will weigh you down. Do I got to go again? You seek a worship experience that suits you. You know, that did nothing for me that morning. I didn't like the music. Pastor was really just kind of down. By the way, you know, sometimes I get frustrated with my own self when I'm preaching. I was like, man, I can't believe I'm saying those things. Um, We need to learn what it means to worship to an audience of one. Amen. Amen. So three things about how. It's done in community, a diverse community. It's done in truth. And we got to be in gospel rest. We can't try to earn our way into this. Now, I want to close with just kind of add on to this, okay? I subscribe to several weekly information pieces, and they deal with Christian leadership context in our world. And one's called Steve Graves. Steve Graves, he writes these. And this week, he wrote an article that highlighted five things that we need to do as believers to keep us being thankful. And I said to myself, wow, these really, really fit on what we need to do as believers when we think about worship. So here they are. Reflection. It's the first one. Taking in an honest parade of the past. Now, our culture's not good at this. Or we're too good at it. We get stuck in the past. That's all we talk about. See, an honest parade of the past is, yeah, okay, but look at the great God I serve. I'm not defined by this. I'm defined by who he is. I don't have to live here. I can live in the presence of God. Now, most of us, tragically, are too busy with the present and thinking about the future that we don't take time to reflect. And yet we see it in this this text. You know, you've heard me say this before, but do a word study in the word remember sometime because the importance of reflection is choosing what we remember is critical. So taking the time to just sit and reflect an honest parade of what God has done. Two, humility. I like when he said, get my photo off center stage. You know, I thought about social media because we often love to post selfies. Now, we're not talking about the humble brag here. Oh, you know, no, no, that's just all God. What we're talking about, I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Now, I was reading another blog, and it kind of fits with this. And this person was describing ungrateful people. And here's what he said in the context of community in a church. He said, ungrateful people 
You can spot them. Here's how. He says, there's a person who appears to be humble and kind and polite, but arrogance beats in their hearts. This person will eventually grab their toys and move on because people have offended and disappointed them. Now, when I look at the word humility, I'm not sure how it all works. I've been told that about the time you think you got it, you lost it. So I don't know what all that means, but I do know that Scripture tells us to worship in spirit and in truth. And true worship will humble us. Appreciation, especially for the small stuff. We like big, we think it's better. But think about the small things. Think about God at work. Think about an act of kindness no one sees. Think about the simple beauty of seeing a child playing. Appreciate that we can worship in our country without fear of death or imprisonment. That's a big thing. And yet we lose appreciation because, well, just because it's about us and not about who he is. See, true worship causes us to appreciate. True worship puts us off center stage. It humbles us. It makes us appreciative. Then he talks about shifting, strain out the poison. I like this thought because I think too many of us live with poison in our minds and our hearts that we need to get rid of. You know, I love the, the person who wrote that unforgiveness is drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. It just kills us when we keep that poison inside of us. There are thoughts and perspectives, past traumas, stuff that poisons us. And we take the offenses in our minds and our hearts, we have to get rid of those because they create darkness. They don't create light. Philippians 4, verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellent, if there is any praise, dwell on these things. And then he says, just don't dwell on them. He says, practice them. And the peace of God will be with you. Then contentment. Focus on what you have and not what you don't. Very large need today, isn't it? And discontent enslaves us and it eats away our soul. And I, I have to ask myself when I'm discontent with worship, why? And what I discover is it's nothing about up here, but it's everything about here. See, debt is a key sign of discontent. It creates deficits in our bank accounts. It creates deficits in our marriages. It creates deficit with our kids. We end up pushing each other to be what we want them, all in the name that we simply want the best for them. It creates deficits in our jobs, deficits in our worship. We don't have, therefore we can't. They do it better over there. But here's what the psalmist is saying. Worship has the potential to change your life and connect you to God as never before. It's a privilege. It's an opportunity. In worship, we have access to the Holy of Holies. In worship, we get to be in the presence of God. We speak truth about who he is and what he has done, what he is doing and what he will do. I'm going to close, invite the worship team up. I'm going to close with a passage in Ephesians chapter 3. I want you to listen to it, but just let me back up to see how this begins. In chapter 1, verse 3, 
It begins with a guy who has a terrible past, traumatic present and future. He's, be, he's been beaten in prison, lied about and lied to. He loses the popularity contest in Corinth for preachers, okay? And here's how he starts. We've been blessed. Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And later on in verse 15, he says, for this reason, in chapter 2, verse 11, therefore remember, in chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason... And then down in 3.14, and here's the passage I'm going to read. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. This reason, who Jesus Christ is, this is the reason I worship. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, not according to my riches, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, not your strength, his strength, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we, that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And we all said, amen. amen. Let's stand as we worship.